Chapter fifty eight of the Hidden Hand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget. The Hidden Hand by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter fifty eight. End of the Lady's Story. Of the present, naught is bright, but in the coming years I see a brilliant and a cheerful light which burns before thee constantly. W. D. Gallagher. At the appointed hour the next morning, Traverse Rock repaired to the cell of his mysterious patient. He was pleased to find her up, dressed with more than usual care and taste, and looking, upon the whole, much better in health and spirits than upon the preceding day. "'Ah, my young hero, it is you. You see that I am ready for you,' she said, holding out her hand. "'You are looking very well this morning,' said Travers, smiling. "'Yes, hope is a fine tonic, Dr. Rock.' She was seated by the same window at which Travers had first seen her, and she now beckoned the young doctor to come and take a seat near her. "'My story is almost as melodramatic as a modern romance, Dr. Rock,' she said. Travers bowed gravely and waited. "'My father was a French patriot, who suffered death in the cause of liberty, when I, his only child, was but fourteen years of age. My mother, broken-hearted by his loss, followed him within a few months. I was left an orphan, and penniless, for our estate was confiscated.' "'Ah, your sorrows came early, and heavily indeed,' said Travers." "'Yes. Well, a former servant of my father held an humble situation of porter on the ground floor of a house, the several floors of which were let out to different lodgers. This poor man and his wife gave me a temporary home with themselves. Among the lodgers of this house there was a young Virginian gentleman of fortune, travelling for pleasure and improvement. His name was Mr. Eugene Lenore. "'Lenore?' cried Travers, with a violent start. "'Yes. What is the matter?' "'It is a familiar Virginia name, madame, that is all. Pray go on.' Mr. Lenore was as good and kind as he was wise and cultivated. He used to stop gossip with old Clicquot every time he stopped at the porter's room, to take or to leave his key. There he heard of the poor little orphan of the guillotine, who had no friends in the world but her father's old servant. He pitied me, and after many consultations with father and mother Clicquot, he assumed the position of guardian to me, and placed me at one of the best schools in Paris. He lingered in the city, and came to see me very often, but always saw me in the presence of Madame, the directress. I clung to him with affection, as to a father or an elder brother, and I knew he loved me, with a tender, protecting affection, that he would have given a younger sister, had he possessed one. Ah, Dr. Rock, tell me, besides yourself, are there many other men in your state like him? I knew but one such, but go on, dear Madame. When I had been to school some months, he came to me one day, scarcely able to conceal his woe. He told me that his father was ill, and that he should have to sail in the first packet from Havre, and that, in fact, he had then come to take leave of me. I was wild with grief, not only upon his account, but upon my own, at the prospect of losing him, my only friend. I was but a child, and a French child to boot. I knew nothing of the world. I regarded this noble gentleman, who was so much my superior in years as in everything else, as a father, guardian, or elder brother, so in an agony of grief I threw myself into his arms, sobbing and weeping bitterly, and imploring him not to break my heart by leaving me. It was in vain Madame the Directress exclaimed and expostulated at these improprieties. I am sure I did not hear a word until he spoke. Putting me out of his arms, he said, I must go, my child. Duty calls me. Then take me with you, take your poor little one with you, 
and do not pull her out of your warm, good heart, or she will wither and die like a flower torn up by the roots, I cried, between my sobs and tears. He drew me back to his bosom and whispered, There is but one way in which I can take you with me, my child. Will you be my wife, little Capitoli? Capitola! cried Traverse, with another great start. Yes, why? What is the matter now? Why, it is such an odd name, that is all. Pray proceed, madam. We were married the same day, and sailed the third morning thereafter from Havre for the United States, where we arrived, alas, only to find the noble gentleman, my Eugene's father, laid in his grave. After Mr. Lenore's natural grief was over, we settled down peaceably to our country life at the hidden house. The hidden house! again exclaimed Traverse Rock. Yes, that is another odd name, isn't it? Well, I was very happy. At first, when I understood my real position, I had been afraid that my husband had married me only from compassion, but he soon proved to me that his love was as high, as pure, and as noble as himself. I was very happy, but one day, in the midst of my exultant joy, a thunderbolt fell and shattered my peace to destruction for ever. Oh, Dr. Rock, my husband was murdered by some unknown hand in his own woods in open day. I cannot talk of this, cried the widow, breaking down and overwhelmed with the rush of terrible recollections. Travers poured out a glass of water and handed it to her. She drank it, made an effort at self-control, and resumed. Thus, scarcely sixteen years of age, I was a widow, helpless, penniless, and entirely dependent upon my brother-in-law, Colonel Gabriel Lenore, for by the terms of their father's will, if Eugene died without issue, the whole property descended to his younger brother, Gabriel. To speak the truth, Colonel Lenore was exceedingly kind to me after my awful bereavement, until a circumstance was discovered that changed all our relations. It was two months after my husband's death that I discovered, with mingled emotions of joy and sorrow, that heaven had certainly destined me to become a mother. I kept my cherished secret to myself as long as it was possible, but it could not indeed be long concealed from the household. I believe that my brother-in-law was the first to suspect it. He called me into his study one day, and I obeyed like a child, and there he rudely questioned me upon the subject of my sacred mother mystery. He learned the truth more from my silence than from my replies, for I could not answer him. The brute, the miserable hound, ejaculated Travers. Oh, Dr. Rock, I could not tell you the avalanche of abuse, insult, and invective that he hurled upon my defenseless head. He accused me of more crimes than I had ever heard talk of. He told me that my condition was an impossible one, unless I had been false to the memory of his brother, that I had dishonored his name, disgraced his house, and brought myself to shame, that I should leave the roof, leave the neighborhood, and die as I deserve to die, in a ditch. I made no reply. I was crushed into silence under the weight of his reproaches. The caitiff, the poltroon! Ah, poor stranger, why did you not leave the house at once, and throw yourself upon the protection of the minister of your parish, or some other kind neighbor? Alas, I was a child, a widow, and a foreigner all in one. I did not know your land, or your laws, or your people. I was not hopeful or confident. I had suffered so cruelly, and I was overwhelmed by his abuse." But did you not know, dear lady, that all his rage was aroused only by the fact that the birth of your child would disinherit him? Ah, no, I was not aware at that time that Gabriel Lenore was a villain. I thought his anger honest, though unjust, and I was as ignorant as a child. 
I had no mother nor matronly friend to instruct me. I knew that I had broken no command of God or man, that I had been a faithful wife. But when Gabriel Lenoir accused me with such bitter earnestness, I feared that some strange departure from the usual course of nature had occurred for my destruction, and I was overwhelmed by mortification, terror, and despair. Ah, the villain! exclaimed Traverse, between his teeth. He told me at last that to save the memory of his dead brother he would hide my dishonor, and he ordered me to seclude myself from the sight of all persons. I obeyed him like a slave, grateful even for the shelter of his own roof. A roof that was your own, as he very well knew. And he knew also, the caitiff, that if the circumstance became known, the whole state would have protected you in your rights, and ejected him like a cur. Nay, even in that case, no harm should have reached him on my account. He was my husband's brother. And worst enemy. But proceed, dear lady. Well, I secluded myself as he commanded. For four months I never left the attic to which he had ordered me to retreat. At the end of that time I became the mother of twins, a boy and a girl. The boy only opened his eyes on this world to close them again directly. The girl was living and healthy. The old nurse who attended me had an honest and compassionate face. I persuaded her to secrete and save the living child, and to present the dead babe to Colonel Lenore as the only one, for the suspicions that had never been awakened for myself were alarmed for my child. I instinctively felt that he would have destroyed it. The mother's instinct is like inspiration, said Travers. It may be so. Well, the old woman pitied me and did as I desired. She took the dead child to Colonel Lenore, who carried it off, and afterward buried it as the sole heir of his elder brother. The old woman carried off my living child and my wedding ring, concealed under her ample shawl. Anxiety for the fate of my child caused me to do what nothing else on earth would have tempted me to do to creep about the halls and passages on tiptoe, and under cover of the night, and listen at keyholes, said the lady, blushing deeply at the recollection. You, you were perfectly right, Mrs. Lenore. In a den of robbers, where your life and honor were always at stake, you could have done no otherwise, exclaimed Traverse warmly. I learned by this means that my poor old nurse had paid with her liberty for her kindness to me. She had been abducted and forced from her native country together with a child found in her possession, which they evidently suspected, and I knew, to be mine. Oh, heaven! The agony then of thinking what might be her unknown fate, worse than death, perhaps. I felt that I had only succeeded in saving her life. Doubtful good. Here Mrs. Lenore paused in thought for a few moments, and then resumed. It is the memory of a long, dreary, and hopeless imprisonment, my recollection of my residence in that house. In the same manner in which I gained all my information, I learned that it was reported in the neighborhood that I had gone mad with grief for the loss of my husband, and that I was an inmate of a madhouse in the north. It was altogether false. I never left the hidden house in all those years, until about two years ago. My life there was dreary beyond all conception." I was forbidden to go out or to appear at a window. I had the whole attic, containing some eight or ten rooms, to rove over, but I was forbidden to descend. An ill-looking woman called Dorcas Knight, between whom and the elder Lenore there seemed to have been some sinful bond, was engaged ostensibly as my attendant, but really as my jailer. Nevertheless, when the sense of confinement grew intolerable, I sometimes eluded her vigilance, and wandered about the house at night. Thence, no doubt, said Travers, giving rise to the report that the house was haunted. Mrs. Lenore smiled, saying, I believe the Lenores secretly encouraged that report. I'll tell you why. 
They gave me their chamber lamp, enclosed in an intense blue shade, that cast a strange, unearthly light around. Their ostensible reason was to ensure my safety from fire. Their real reason was that this light might be seen from without, in what was reputed to be an uninhabited portion of the house, and give color to its bad reputation among the ignorant of its being haunted. So much for the origin of one authenticated ghost story, said Travers. Yes, and there was still more circumstantial evidence to support this ghostly reputation of the house. As the years passed I had, even in my confined state, gathered knowledge in one way and another, picking up stray books and hearing stray conversation, and so, in the end, I learned how gross a deception and how great a wrong had been practiced upon me. I was not wise or cunning. I betrayed constantly to my attendant my knowledge of these things, in consequence of which my confinement became still more restricted. Yes, they were afraid of you, and fear is always the mother of cruelty, said Travers. Well, from the time that I became enlightened as to my real position, all my faculties were upon the alert to find means of escaping and making my condition known to the authorities. One night they had a guest, Colonel Eglin of the army. Old Dorcas had her hands full, and forgot her prisoner. My door was left unlocked. So, long after Colonel Eglin had retired to rest, and when all the household were buried in repose, I left my attic and crept down to the chamber of the guest, with no other purpose than to make known my wrongs and appeal to his compassion. I entered his chamber, approached his bed to speak to him, when this hero of a hundred fields started up in a panic, and at the sight of a pale woman, who drew his curtains in the dead of the night, he shrieked, violently rang his bell, and fainted dead away. Ha, ha, ha! He could brave an army or march into a cannon's mouth easier than me a supposed denizen of another world. Well, Dr. Johnson believed in ghosts, laughed Travers. It remained for me to retreat as fast as possible to my room to avoid the Lenores, who were hurrying along with headlong speed to their guest-chamber. They knew, of course, that I was the ghost, although they affected to treat their visitor's story as a dream. After that my confinement was so strict that for years I had no opportunity of leaving my attic. At last the strict espionage was relaxed. Sometimes my door would be left unlocked. Upon one such occasion, and creeping about in the dark, by overhearing a conversation between Lenore and his housekeeper, that my long-lost daughter Capitola had been found and was living at Hurricane Hall. This was enough to comfort me for years. About three years ago, the surveillance over me was so modified that I was left again to roam about the upper rooms of the house at will, until I learned that they had a new inmate, young Clara Day, a ward of Lenore. Oh, how I longed to warn that child to fly! But I could not. Alas! Again I was restricted to my own room, lest I should be seen by her. But again, upon one occasion, old Dorcas forgot to lock my door at night. I stole forth from my room, and learned that a young girl, caught out in a storm, was to stay all night at the hidden house. Young girls were not plentiful in that neighborhood, I knew. Besides, some secret instinct told me that this was my daughter. I knew that she would sleep in the chamber under mine, because that was the only habitable guest-room in the whole house. In the dead of night I left my room, and went below, and entered the chamber of the young girl. I went first to the toilet-table, to see if among her little girlish ornaments I could find any clue to her identity. I found it in a plain gold ring, the same that I had entrusted to the old nurse. Some strange impulse caused me to slip the ring upon my finger. Then I went to the bed, and threw aside the curtains to gaze upon the sleeper. My girl, my own girl! With what strange sensations I first looked upon her face! Her eyes were open, and fixed upon mine, in a panic of terror. 
I stooped to press my lips to hers, and she closed her eyes in mortal fear. I carried nothing but terror with me. I withdrew from the room, and went back sobbing to my chamber. My poor girl next morning unconsciously betrayed her mother. It had nearly cost me my life. When the Lenores came home, the first night of their arrival, they entered my room, seized me in my bed, and dragged me shrieking from it. "'Good heaven! What punishment is sufficient for such wretches?' exclaimed Travers, starting up and pacing the narrow limits of the cell. "'Listen! They soon stopped both my shrieks and my breath at once. I lost consciousness for a time, and when I awoke I found myself in a close carriage, rattling over a mountain road, through the night. Late the next morning we reached an uninhabited country house, where I was again imprisoned, in charge of an old dumb woman, whom Lenora called Mrs. Raven.' This I afterward understood to be Willow Heights, the property of the orphan heiress, Clara Day. And here also, for the term of my stay, the presence of the unknown inmate got the house the reputation of being haunted. The old dumb woman was a shade kinder to me than Dorcas Knight had been, but I did not stay in her charge very long. One night the Lenores came in hot haste. The young heiress had been delivered from their charge by a decree of the orphan's court, and they had to give up her house. I was drugged and hurried away. Some narcotic sedative must have been insinuated into all my food, for I was in a state of semi-sensibility and mild delirium during the whole course of a long journey by land and sea, which passed to me like a dream, and at the end of which I found myself here. No doubt, from the excessive use of narcotics, there was something wild and stupid in my manner and appearance that justified the charge of madness." and when I found that I was a prisoner in a lunatic asylum, far, far away from the neighborhood where at least I had once been known, I gave way to the wilder grief that further confirmed the story of my madness. I have been here two years, occasionally giving way to outbursts of wild despair that the doctor calls frenzy. I was sinking into an apathy, when one day I opened the little Bible that lay upon the table of my cell. I fixed upon the last chapters in the Gospel of John, that narrative of meek patience and divine love. It did for me what no power under that of God could have done. It saved me. It saved me from madness. It saved me from despair. There is a time for the second birth of every soul. That time had come for me. From that hour, this book has been my constant companion and comfort. I have learned from its pages how little it matters how or where this fleeting mortal life is passed, so that it answers its purpose of preparing the soul for another. I have learned patience with sinners, forgiveness of enemies, and confidence in God. In a word, I trust I have learned the way of salvation, and in that have learned everything. Your coming and your words, young friend, have stirred within my heart the desire to be free, to mingle again on equal terms with my fellow beings, and above all, to find and embrace my child. But not wildly anxious am I even for these earthly blessings— these, as well as all things else, I desire to leave to the Lord, praying that His will may be mine. Young friend, my story is told. Madame, said Traverse, after a thoughtful pause, our fates have been more nearly connected than you could have imagined. Those Lenores have been my enemies as they are yours. That young orphan heiress, who appealed from their cruelty to the orphan's court, was my own betrothed. Willow Heights was her patrimony, and is now her quiet home, where she lives with my mother, and where in their names I invited you to come. And take this comfort also. Your enemy no longer lives. Months ago I left him ill with a mortal wound. This morning the papers announce his death. There remains, therefore, but little for me to do, 
but to take legal measures to free you from this place and restore you to your home. Within an hour I shall set out for New Orleans, for the purpose of taking the initiatory steps. Until my return, then, dear lady, said Travers, respectfully taking her hand, farewell, and be of good cheer. End of chapter 58